This is CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast from the University of Cambridge, where we're bringing you the latest evidence and expertise to improve public policymaking. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast on the Green Recovery. In the series so far, we've looked at the great shock that we're experiencing due to the COVID pandemic and the ways that that shock has created the necessity to rethink the way that we live our lives, the way that our economy works, the way that society works, and to recognise that that is a horrible shock that causes great trauma for people, great hardship, but it's also an opportunity to take stock and rethink. And of course, as governments are going to be investing to re-stimulate the economy, to protect jobs, there's an opportunity that that spending can be in line with the commitments that governments are making on a climate change commitments, biodiversity commitments. And so we've been talking about how these challenges and opportunities can be framed. And in, in recent episodes, we've talked a lot about climate change, anticipating the meeting in Glasgow next year. But of course, in 2021, there's also another important UN conference, that on biodiversity. The international community has entered into commitments to redress the biodiversity loss that we've seen. And in May 2021, there'll be a big UN meeting which will review progress and chart a new course for 2030. So it's really a coming together of different kinds of challenges that the world community needs to address. So in this episode, we're going to really think about biodiversity and think about nature and think about sort of holistically how societies and governments can try and make sense of this opportunity and, and chart a more positive way forward. So we're very pleased to be joined by my colleague, Alice Millington, who's a PhD student in Cambridge um, in the geography department, but spending a few months as an intern with CSAP. You're welcome, Alice. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. And we'll be talking to Chris Sandbrook and Fiona Reynolds. So Fiona um, is Master of Emmanuel College um, at Cambridge, has um, had a career that spanned many different aspects of public policy and nature and the heritage world, uh, beginning working in national parks and the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England, also a spell in government as the director of the Women's Unit in the Cabinet Office, and then uh, over 10 years as the Director General of the National Trust before coming to Cambridge as Master of Emmanuel College. So Fiona, I'm really interested to hear how do you see this moment? I mean, is, is it a crisis? Is it an opportunity? Is it a wake-up call? How, how do you assess the moment we're living in? Well, it's all of those, Rob, um, and more, actually. Um, I think the thing that's really humbling for me to recognise, and, and I have spent my working life in the conservation movement largely, is to realise that over my lifetime, we have seen a greater decline in nature than at any time before in, in, in history. And indeed, even more than that, that in the hundred years or so since the main conservation organisations were established in this country, you know, that too has been a period of decline. So ever since we started looking after nature, it's got worse. And I think that context is, is only just something we're, we're waking up to as a society. Government has now said it wants to reverse that decline, um, actually go into nature recovery. But I, I don't think any of us fully understand the magnitude of that challenge when we've been in consistent decline 
for, for many, many centuries. Um, and even the, the enormity of climate change is almost within nature because it is the health of the planet we're talking about and all the complicated systems and interconnections. And climate change is, in a sense, just one of the manifestations or the disruption that we've caused to the planet by the exploitation of natural resources and the disruption of nat natural systems. I'm passionate about nature and I'm an eternal optimist. But I think we have to think really deeply and radically about how we can turn this process around. And, and from my perspective, that, that's a process that needs to put people first and foremost into the debate, because it's not going to be turned around by somebody else. It's not going to be turned around by some big system that you just switch a lever and everything changes. It's only going to be turned around by us as a society, recognising the significance of nature and actually adopting you know, new lifestyles and, and, and new, new senses of, of what's important. How does that square with the sense of urgency we hear from scientists working on, let's say, climate change, let's say biodiversity loss, there is strong evidence that we are collectively at a moment, you know, perhaps of tipping points where mm. urgent action is needed. How, how do you square that with the sense that we need to be doing the careful work to involve people in, in the changes that are needed? Well, I don't think they're incompatible. And actually, you know, lots of different things need to be done. And there's lots of different time frames for those. I mean, there are some really obvious things we're not doing. For example, I mean, take peat as a, as a resource. I mean, peat is incredibly rare globally. We have a high percentage of it proportionately in the UK. And yet you can still buy peat in garden centres to put on your garden. I mean, that should have been banned decades ago. And in fact, when I was in my early days at the National Trust, but, you know, this is the early 2000 around then, you know, there was every optimism that it would be banned and it's still not. So, you know, there are certain things we simply have to be decisive about. Um, our protected uh, landscapes and our protected nature sites are still being diminished. So, you know, there are certain things we could do much more assertively and urgently. But there are other things in terms of the kind of fundamental changes where actually we, we need a kind of realignment of our priorities and a reconnection of people. But, you know, to take it at, at its simplest, we can't put nature into uh, regeneration without thinking about every single aspect of our lives and every single place. So kind of we need to put nature back into towns and cities. We need to put nature back into gardens. We need to put nature back into rural areas through farming and woodland that are much more nature oriented. And frankly, we need to put nature back into our education system and into the way that we you know, bring children up. There are so many aspects that we could make a big difference quite quickly, but it's a long term process of restoration. Listening to that, I'm wondering whether you see sort of nature and biodiversity as, as one element of a whole host of different challenges that we need to be facing, or almost you're suggesting that actually you think that engaging with nature, bringing nature in to our thinking and our lives is actually a key to unlocking the 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 more complex whole. Yes, I do. I mean, and you know, Rob, that I'm absolutely passionate about the concept of beauty, which I think is, is, is bigger than nature. I think it's a sort of cultural dimension as well. And I, I never think of beauty as just an aesthetic. I think of it as a kind of way of looking at the world. And I think what's happened is as a society, we've got entranced by material gain, entranced by possessions and consumerism. And our economy too has been, you know, we measure everything by, by GDP and GDP is a terrible 
terrible way if you're interested in the natural environment at all, because there's no balance sheet for GDP. It's simply a chart of income and expenditure on an annual basis. And actually, we all know that the balance sheet is fundamentally what matters. Even in our own domestic accounts, we know the balance sheet is, is important. So why are we running our national accounts as if the balance sheet didn't matter? So, you know, if you think about beauty and nature and the kind of qualitative aspects of life, quality of life, health, happiness, well-being, you start to be in a position where, where you start to value things differently. And, and, and actually, we can't have eternally more and more possessions and more and more GDP. We, we simply haven't got the resources in the planet to do that. So somehow it's about reframing what success looks like and what our lives might be like in a, in a sustainable living environment and being being happy where, you know, seeing a bird fly across the sky or, or, or the primroses coming out in spring or actually is something we not only think, oh, that's nice, but actually we think that's really important to me, that that connects with the kind of values that I have and the experiences I want. And so, yes, it's a much, much bigger thing, but it has its um, evocation often in something that seems very, very small and very precious but doesn't necessarily at the moment connect with those deeper values and what I'm always arguing for is is, is that sort of Ian Forster words only connect you know only help people see the bigger dimensions of what it is that needs to be done but equally what it is that we care about and its significance. And it, it's very clear that you know there's a there's a economic crisis there needs to be public investment um, to to keep the economy going to create and look after jobs. There's a potential fiscal crisis coming with the debt burden that's, that's built up. And there's a political crisis in this country, which requires, you know, quite rightly, government to think about a geographical inequality and to redress some of that inequality. And so what we're seeing are commitments to invest in infrastructure in parts of the country that perhaps have missed out in some of that investment in the past. And that you know, is, is, is quite apparent and quite obvious. How would you see your argument about bringing nature into the centre of these conversations, fitting with, let's say, commitment to invest in infrastructure in, in parts of the country that feel like they've missed out? Well, there are a lot of, there are some, you know, several big sort of almost existential crises going on simultaneously. I mean, there's COVID, there's, there's nature, there's climate for sure, but there's also the kind of inequality and health challenges, which, which COVID have, have revealed even more intensely, they already existed. And levelling up is absolutely rightly, in my view, you know, a government priority. But I think it's about what we invest in. So, you know, if you're investing in public transport in the north, rather than motorways in the north, you're investing in something that's about sustainability. Um, green infrastructure barely gets a look in, but actually investing in green in infrastructure, the long-term sustainable management of natural resources, and indeed the provision of green spaces and spaces for nature and all of those connecting ambitions will be, you know, should be an essential part of these um, packages. So I think for me, one of the challenges is you know, are we going to go for short-term recovery or long-term recovery? And long-term recovery with sustainability at its heart looks very different from short-term recovery. I mean, another passion of mine, as you probably know, is about building houses, which we certainly need in the right place. And at the moment, the government's proposals would build 300,000 houses a year on green fields in the south and east, which is absolutely the antithesis of where and how we should be building to give people good lives that they can live in a sustainable way which requires investment in inner cities and in um, places that have become, been left behind, improving quality of life and, and, and improving the kind of rounded provision 
of, of housing, but also jobs, uh, green infrastructure, access to nature, you know, doctor surgeries and schools and all of those things within walking distance. So there is there are choices here. And, and the worry is always that we get into kind of short term panic mode rather than what's the long term sustainable track uh, to a better future. It's quite interesting, you know, again, currently in the UK that cost benefit analysis has become political again. And we've seen groups of MPs demanding cost benefit analysis to back up um, interventions to support social distancing um, and questions of cost benefit analysis in terms of where um, investment in infrastructure takes place. How do you see the sort of obviously there needs to be some kind of you know, rigor in, in the allocation of public money? Um, and that current basis doesn't seem to lend itself to the sort of vision that you're you're setting out. Do you see that as a tension or, or oh gosh like well i've I've been fighting the fight against conventional cost benefit analysis for most of my life, really, because the trouble is you you know you put into a cost benefit analysis the stuff you can measure and the stuff you can't measure just doesn't get in because it can't be can't be measured can't be doesn't doesn't fit the grid. so you you get into sort of ridiculous situations where Actually, you know in your heart what the right thing is to do, but the cost-benefit analysis comes up with a completely different number and a completely different solution. Everyone goes, oh, let's listen to the cost-benefit analysis. Like they say, let's listen to the science without realising that science is itself a, an evolving and, and to some extent a cultural thing. So, you know, what, I think what, what the MPs are saying is they're saying kind of show us your workings. That's a much better question. Show us how you got there. Show us what you've put into the system and, and and what it's throughout and why. So I, I think cost-benefit analysis is a is a sidetrack that's really unhelpful. Um, but I think it is perfectly possible to put qualitative and cultural elements into the equation as long as you're transparent about that and you're clear that you're making judgments, because that's what that's what politicians do all the time. And it's much better to be open about that than to pretend there's some kind of perfect formula that if you could once find it would go, oh right, let's do this, because life isn't like that. What what you're calling for is clearly quite a substantial shift in the way that we think about government and, and government in spending. Do you think that there are lessons that government could learn from other organisations? I mean, you obviously know the National Trust very well. Are, are there you know other places that government could look to to, to think about investment, as you say, in, in the long term? There's some countries which do this much better than others. Actually, Bhutan, you know, just to, to name at random, and Alice knows more about Bhutan than probably I do. But, you know, there, there's a country which took as its own measure of success a kind of, you know, well-being and environmental um, set of objectives rather than classic GDP. So, you know, there are countries all over the world who are, who are thinking about what really matters to them. I think New Zealand has, a, has also a very interesting uh, perspective on this, looks at natural resources, looks at the kind of almost a natural capital perspective. The, the big pitch I'm making at the moment personally to government is, is strategic land use um, frameworks, because at the moment we've got all these siloed objectives. We want nature, we want uh, carbon net zero, we want levelling up, we want infrastructure, we want houses, we want you know, we want lots and lots of things. And there literally is no mechanism available at the moment in our system to stand back from it and say, OK, so where's the best place to put new infrastructure and to invest in new housing where we can optimise, you know, and, and build in all these other objectives kind of from the start rather than building lots of houses and then going, oh, right, we've caused a big problem here because everyone's driving around, you know, far more than they used to because it's out somewhere in 
in the middle of a, a greenfield site. So there are some mechanisms that we could have and should have that we're not using. Um, Fiona, it's actually interesting that you bring in other countries. I wonder where you think the UK stands in the global stead for consideration of biodiversity. Would you consider it more of a global leader or is it falling behind in terms of its treatment of nature? Actually, we're not doing very well. There are, there are flags which say, you know, green, amber, red against the Aichi targets, which are the targets that were set for biodiversity. The, the, the globe is not doing very well and the UK is not doing very well at all. And again, you know, one of my wake up calls was realising that national parks, which is my first job after leaving university and where we all thought national parks were doing really, really good things. Actually, when we went back and did the analysis a few years ago, we realised that nature was no better protected in national parks than it was in the wider countryside, which is which is a shock. So we thought we were doing well and, and we aren't. So I think the countries that are doing better are those, as you say, that have just put it up there uh, uh, as a national priority. And although we've got the right words and the right, you know, theoretically the right policies to reverse the decline of nature, um, at the moment, we're not doing it. It, it, it. We've got to get. We've got to get going and do things differently. Is is the point? Mm. And how do you think it came to be that the UK slid behind these other countries? Because the National Trust was a forerunner in its early inception. Mm. Why is it slipped from the top? I think. I think it's a really good question, Alice. And I think complacency probably is one of the reasons. I, I as I say, I'm feeling pretty humbled by this myself because. You know, I, I I think we all thought we were doing a fairly good job and it wasn't until, and this is where the global stuff does really matter because it just shines a light on what everybody's doing and starts comparing people and saying, you know, we had lots of national parks, we had lots of nature designations, we had lots of activity going on, but underneath it all, things were getting worse. And I think it, it has been a, a kind of big wake up call. Um, and I think that the, what we've realised actually is probably a mistake was to put lines around places, you know, to think that an SSSI meant that we were looking after nature. Whereas actually what we've lost is nature in the wider countryside and the kind of generality of, of lots of insects and lots of butterflies and lots of common species. We've sort of focused on the, the special areas at the expense of the kind of generality. So what do you feel is the paradigm shift we need in the UK to start putting green recovery back on the agenda for biodiversity? Well, what gives me great optimism is that people as a whole are, are really waking up to nature. And actually the, the joy this spring in, in the first lockdown when all of us were really confined to home, but in the world, probably the most beautiful spring I can remember for many years, of people discovering in their neighbourhood that actually we were teeming with wildlife at the very local level, finding things that they'd never noticed before, probably never even stopped to, to think about before, was a great joy. And I think what you can see is when people discover nature, it sort of becomes part of their life. So I think that is immensely optimistic for, for getting things back on track. I think David Attenborough says, you know, no one will protect what they don't care about and no one will care about what they haven't experienced. So that experiential connection with nature is what gives me great hope. So people need nature. You know, it brings us great quality of life and great joy. But actually nature needs people because once you're energised and once you're focused on the need for its protection, you know, people are then willing to act and willing to do things differently. So that that's where the future lies. Turning to you, Chris, to what extent do you think the COVID pandemic has highlighted a crisis in biodiversity? I, that's a really tricky question, because while I think it's definitely highlighted connections between people and other elements of biodiversity, particularly through the 
you know, the supposed origin of the disease coming across from some combination of pangolins and, and bats, you know, probably in the market in China. Whether that's really led to any broader ideas about biodiversity loss and the kind of crisis of the natural world getting across to the to the general public, I'm, I'm really not so sure. And I think there's even one possible reaction to information about the origins of, of COVID-19 would be to say, well, let's just get rid of all of those species that might harbour these kinds of diseases. Now, what, why do we need pangolins? Let's just exterminate them and then we won't have any more reservoirs of these diseases out there. So yeah, while, while the connections are made present through this, I think we have to be quite cautious about how we interpret what that might mean for, for the future. In your view, do you think the COVID pandemic will be a wake-up call for biodiversity or climate change solutions, or do you think it could exacerbate existing problems? It certainly could be a major change in the future. I think it has been a wake-up call. Whether whether society is listening to the alarm clock or not, um, I'm not sure. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. I think it, I'm reminded a little of the kinds of conversations we were having about the global economic system a decade ago when the crisis struck and, and lots of um, initial optimism about, you know, surely now this is the moment when this system will change and, and things will, will go off in a different direction. And then really that, that didn't happen at all. And we saw extraordinary efforts invested into returning us to the system that we had before, by and large, and, and um, a system which I believe is, is quite broken. So I think now there's a lot of talk about things like a green recovery, you know, perhaps has moved on in a way that we would not have expected two or three years ago. And that's very encouraging. But I also think that the the easiest um, solution or option which many governments and decision makers will reach for is a kind of desperate quest to get back to previous levels of economic growth and and affluence in society, which may actually entail further destruction and exploitation of natural resources rather than their conservation. So we could see it going in a way that would be markedly worse for nature than than where we were before. When we look at these big, ambitious global policy for biodiversity. What are some of the social outcomes that we see arise from this? And who tends to be most affected socially by biodiversity conservation projects? Well, one of the kind of great ironies or paradoxes, I suppose, of conservation is that, you know, while we all need biodiversity, and and some people in particular, you know, need biodiversity in a very urgent way in their kind of day-to-day lives as a source of, of livelihood, efforts to conserve biodiversity actually constrain the ways in which people can make use of it. And so you can end up with a situation where people who particularly live at the front line, you know, close to the kinds of natural resources which we are keen to conserve, end up suffering negative consequences of those conservation efforts. So, you know, whether that's just saying that you can no longer go and collect a certain resource, you know, go hunting or fishing in a place, or it can even be to the extent of being um, physically relocated to make way for a protected area. So every conservation action has positive and negative consequences. And the important thing is to think through and understand you know, who is going to benefit and who is going to lose from what we might want to do. And where appropriate to, to try and find ways to compensate or mitigate for that if, it's, uh, if there are certain people who are going to be you know, heavily losing out overall, even if the actions make perfect sense for the kind of global perspective. So with some of the recent um, big proposals around mitigating climate change and conserving biodiversity, we've got these ideas like, you know, let's get 50% of the the planet into some kind of protected area, um, because that's the only way that we'll achieve these objectives. And, you know, I'm not completely against the idea of 
further protection of the natural world for all of the reasons mentioned. But I do think we absolutely must think through and understand what that will actually mean in practice to people who are living in and using resources in these areas around the world. And I think while it's right to point to the the big global picture and why we need ambitious strategies, that can't be uh, done in a way that ignores the the role of resident populations who, who will almost certainly lose out um, in some cases. Do you think many of these issues are exacerbated by this pandemic as well? I think it, we, I think it's too early to be able to say really how the COVID pandemic will play out in terms of the sorts of environmental policy decisions that might get made um, you know, in the, in the forthcoming COP in the UK for the Climate Change Convention or in the Convention on Biological Diversity meeting, which is you know, now taking place, we think, next year in, in China. These hugely important meetings where big decisions will be made. I think it's certain that what gets decided will be different as a result of COVID, but in what way it will be different, I'm not entirely sure. I think every every different uh, perspective that we hear in these debates has latched onto some element of COVID to kind of reinforce the perspective that they already hold and say, look, you know, COVID only goes to show that what we think should happen should happen even more strongly than before. And those different perspectives are not always aligned with each other. So, you know, you can kind of uh, take from COVID what you what you want. And when we're looking towards this sort of paradigm shift that might be needed in global policy or the global consciousness, where do you think that might be found? Or what do you think might be needed? I'm not sure that a kind of uh, talking about a global paradigm shift or a kind of global shift in consciousness suggests the existence of, of some kind of global public that, you know, is all kind of moving in a similar direction. And I, I don't really feel that that exists. You know, I think we have to think more about the you know the kind of contextual situation in different different parts of the world where different people are you know living with and experiencing their relationship with biodiversity and and um and the climate and you know perhaps try and think more about what you know what matters and what, what will work in each different context rather than feeling that there'll be some kind of big global shift what change in attitude might be needed in uk policy to make more progress with biodiversity or the climate crisis? Well, the, the last couple of decades, at least, of UK conservation policy have probably been quite quite focused on trying to highlight the, the economic value of nature and find ways to you know, create incentives for people to conserve biodiversity that draw on market-based tools. Various things that have happened in the last few years suggest that an approach that adds to it something that's a bit more about emotion and and care and and the kind of love that people can feel for nature. So I think that's really important. On the other hand, I also do feel that the drive of the the green recovery rhetoric that we're hearing from both the government and and the opposition in the UK talks a lot about declining industrial heartlands of the north of England or or south Wales and areas like that. And I, I, I think I really welcome that. I mean, I think if we're going to be talking about some kind of major green transition in the UK, then it's good to be thinking of that in terms of job creation and, and, and supporting communities in those areas that have been really struggling over the last few decades. So I guess you need some sort of a, a balanced approach that tries to tries to take both into account. I think the thing that most worries me in the British context and indeed globally, perhaps with the way that the debate is going at the moment, is that we'll see so-called nature-based solutions, you know, touted for the benefit of climate change that are actually really harmful to biodiversity. So, you know, if we 
put trees on every possible square inch of habitat globally that can can sustain trees um, in the interest of of carbon mitigation, and you know, that that will actually do a lot of harm to biodiversity and potentially to people's livelihoods. And that's a really important um, you know danger to be steered around in the next few years. Do you have any concrete ideas about how that agenda can align positively with an agenda for? recovering nature or promoting biodiversity the idea that we can have an industrial strategy for the uk that promotes well-being of particularly more marginalized people in, in our society whilst also contributing to the energy transition that needs to happen and so on i think is a great idea if we've got a large number of people who are, who are out of work or struggling perhaps as a consequence of covid then you know there might be people who could be who could be put to work for some kind of um, you know green recovery or transformation, and which can include things like you know installing solar panels or going out and and uh, you know doing doing work in in forestry or, or land management that positive for nature and for people. Now, what, you know whether somebody who's just lost their job in a service sector is likely to be yeah. up for going out and and you know spending spending their days planting trees in the Scottish Highlands. I, I mean, probably not. But there, you know there might be something that can be done to try and kind of match these priorities together. Are there you know thinking about your research in the global south are there priorities that you'd like to see so for example at the un conference on biodiversity early in 2021 i mean are are there agendas that you would like to see put forward on the basis of your research yeah so i think um i i would like to see the the concept of environmental justice being a, a kind of central component of whatever gets agreed so that um and that's, you know, I'm talking there about justice, both in terms of justice for, for people, um, but, you know, also justice for other life forms with which we share the planet. But I think you know, it would be, a, you know, it would be a, a real, well, it'd be a disaster and a terrible shame if a, a global conservation strategy was agreed, which had the potential to do great things for climate change and biodiversity loss, but also ran the risk of, um further marginalizing or harming people who really you know have done nothing to cause the problems that we're trying to solve and you know don't don't deserve that as a consequence of of conservation actions i mean conservation has a a history of you know being a a somewhat colonial project you know uh, something that's enforced from the positions of centers of power in the world onto more marginalized areas and you know that's not the kind of conservation that i believe in or want to see going forward. So I think ways need to be found for more locally led initiatives, in, you know, where lo- local residents are sharing more in decision making and, and benefits that can contribute to these global objectives, in a, you know, rather than it being a, a top down imposition. And, and, and do you see that there are models that work to that end? There are models that have been shown to work under certain circumstances. So, for example, communal conservancies in Namibia, where local residents have been given the right to basically keep the benefits from exploitation of wildlife for, for hunting or or, um, or tourism, and, and use those resources to you know, to support local livelihoods and conservation. And we've seen impressive recoveries of wildlife there, and and, and some you know, meaningful advances locally. But there are lots of other contexts where those that kind of combination of circumstances don't exist. And so, one of the great ongoing efforts in conservation research is to try and test and identify things that might work in in that regard a, a big underlying question is what role what role the market should play in in them you know should we be trying to create clever new financial products or commodities that might enable resources to flow to people in areas that are hitherto you know ignored by the global economy 
or should we be doing precisely the opposite and trying to come up with you know new ways of, of you know providing public funding or, or entirely different kind of communitarian approaches so on behalf of alice millington and myself i'd like to thank you fiona reynolds and uh, you Chris Sandbrook for participating in this episode and to you the listeners for joining us. Next week will be the last episode in our series on science policy and a green recovery where we'll be looking at links between human and planetary health. I hope you'll join us then. CSAP's Science and Policy podcast is a production of the Centre for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. This series is produced in partnership with Cambridge Zero. This episode was hosted by me, Rob Doubleday, and was produced by Kate McNeil. You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at CSIPOL or at our website, www.csap.cam.ac.uk. If you have any feedback about this episode or questions you'd like us to address in a future week, please email inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.